So good morning, listeners, and welcome to Sacred Space in Wisdomic 102. My name is John Keeley. Thank you again for joining me this morning. And it's the 2nd of September. It is the 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time. Joining me in studio this morning, Ryan Buckley, good morning to you. How are you? Very well, John. Good morning. Good morning, listeners. And thank you again for joining me. And it's a joy for me to welcome back in studio again, all the way from his holidays out there somewhere and wherever he was in Skyplan. Shane Ambrose, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, John. How are we keeping? We're good. Thanks a lot for coming on, Shane. Because Shane, uh, Shane is, uh, always shares us some good news in terms of the science and so on and so forth, and also keeps our blog going. But before we come to that, I just want to uh, welcome listeners again who are housebound and lonely, those who are struggling maybe with some health problems this morning. Maybe they've got some tests coming up and so on and so forth. Maybe they've heard some bad news over the last few weeks. Look, we're with you this morning when we're bringing some good news. Um, we've got the gospel coming up. We've also got some nice music coming up. So stay with us for the next hour. For those of you who um, listen to us at 11 p.m. each Sunday night, thanks again for joining us. And those of you who might be listening to us somewhere out there in in podcast land in www.land uh, you can listen to us on our blog www.sacredspace102.blogspot.com and also those of us who join us on iTunes by searching come and see inspirations if you want to again uh, as I mentioned before if you want to contact us uh, with any suggestion or a comment please email us and that's on sacredspace102 at gmail.com or you can text us on 87 now, just before we go for the science for the week this week, uh, we can't um, go anywhere but uh, um, to mention a few little thoughts that we might have, maybe a thought each, on what's been happening in Ireland for the last week. For myself, of course, the world meeting the families, um, as far as I'm concerned, it was a beautiful occasion. I really enjoyed the three days, the three days prior to the visit of the Holy Father, where there was a pastoral congress in, in, um, in the RDS, World Meeting the Families. And if people want to listen to any of those talks... Uh, and those of you who might be online, if you go on to uh, the World Meeting of Families 2018 uh, live streaming, and on there from Hall 2 and Hall 3, there's a variety of talks that are available to be heard back. We intend, uh, and I am in the process of recording uh, a lot of stuff um, that we can, and certainly over the next few weeks and few months, Shay, myself and Lorraine are going to be putting our thoughts together to, to bring you what we think uh, it's really good news that come out of that Congress. But Shane, just just a quickie, just for a second. You know, quick thought on... Yeah, I suppose it was a bit different for me, John, because I was actually away, so I I, I was overseas, so I, I wasn't involved in terms of uh, viewing media or in direct participation. It seemed, you know, to... The Congress itself seemed to go well. Um, I've heard nothing but great reports about the wonderful event at Croke Park. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure about the, the, the Phoenix Park, and I've heard great events about, about mm-hmm. Knock. But like you said, I'm looking forward, actually, over the next couple of weeks as we sit down, and we're going to work through the, the, the whole event, and we're going to pick out our highlights for people. Uh, and, and we're going to do it po- both on the programme as well, but we'll also be posting stuff on the blog uh, over the next couple of weeks. And to allow people, I suppose, just to, to reflect and just to think about what was said. Because sometimes these are just big events mm. that can be a flash in the pan. And obviously there was a lot of issues raised in the papal visit. And, you know, we, we'll look at that over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Thanks for that, Jen. Lorraine, you know, so quick thought? I was one of the pilgrims in the Phoenix Park. So, and I do say pilgrims. It was a little bit of a pilgrimage, both getting there, getting to the Mass and mm. getting home from it. But it was a truly wonderful experience and a lot has been spoken uh, in the we would say the secular media I suppose recently about numbers and figures it actually doesn't matter how many was there there was a lot more than 130,000 there I can tell you because I was one of them 
But the exact figures don't matter. What matters is that you had a community of people who were there not for the Pope, but for Jesus Christ. Yeah. Lovely thought. I like that one. So, um, in, in regard to the saints for the week and so on and so forth, um, actually myself and Shane recorded this a few days ago. So I just want to sit back now and listen to Shane sharing of um, the saints for the week this week. So now at this part of the programme, as usual, Shane will share some celestial guides or saints for the week. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, John. As you said at the top of the programme, uh, today is the 2nd of September. So it's the 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time. So we're looking at the 22nd week in Ordinary Time. So for those of us that are praying the Psalter, we're on week two. Now, September September is a weird kind of... The first week of September, John, is a weird kind of a month for the saints. Because it's actually... If you open up the liturgical calendar um, online, as I do, you actually have too much of a selection. Uh, but they're all kind of what we would call maybe minor saints. There's no, there's no big hitters in there. But we picked out a few for this week's program. So the first one on Monday is Pope St. Gregory the Great. Now, Gregory the Great uh, is quite a famous uh, saint in terms of as Pope's goal. Um, this was a guy, he was born around 540 AD in Rome. Now, interesting family. His father was uh, Regenarius, whatever that means. His mother was a saint, Sylvia. He was the nephew of saints. He was the great-grandson of Pope St. Felix III, uh, now, that was from the day and age when um, priests did actually marry and have families. Um, just before that rule was particularly changed and people get all excited with me. Um, now, the interesting thing was he was prefect of Rome and then he decided to sell his home and he entered a Benedictine monastery. And then he used his money to build six further monasteries in Italy. And then in uh, 590 AD, so he would have been around 50, 50 years of age, he was elected the 64th Pope by unanimous acclamation on the 3rd of September, which is why we celebrate his feast day on the 3rd of September. He was the first monk to be chosen uh, as a Pope. And Gregory is famous because he was the guy that sent Augustine and, the, and his friends to England to evangelize the heathens. And he sent other missionaries to France, Spain and parts of Africa. But he's also, of course, his name is also very much associated with melodies and chant um, that we call Gregorian chant because he set about the collection of that particular form of music and heritage in the church. The other thing that's known about him is Gregory is one of the four Latin doctors, uh, the great doctors of the Latin church. And he wrote quite a lot on the mass and the divine office. And, you know, it's, he's, he's, he's regarded as being one of the, the heavy, heavy writers uh, up there with Augustine and I am struggling to remember the other two Ambrose of Milan uh, Augustine, Gregory and I think the other one is John Chrysostom but I'll have to double check that one well so then on um, then on Tuesday we have the feast day of St. Magnissi on the Irish calendar now just bear with me a minute because I've just lost my page but uh, St. Magnissi is associated with the Diocese of Connor, down in Connor. And he took his name from his mother. And it is claimed that St. Patrick baptized him and taught him his psalms. And he became bishop of his clan and died early in the 6th century. Now that's an interesting thing when it says bishop of the clan. Because in the early Irish church, bishops didn't have dioceses. The power in the Irish church was very much vested in the monasteries. And each monastery might have a resident bishop to do the needful in terms of sacramental life. Okay. So that's just a, that's an interesting one there. 
Then on the 5th of September, uh, we have the feast day of St. Teresa of Calcutta, otherwise known, of course, as Mother Teresa, founder of the Missionaries of Charity. Now, I was getting confused about this the other day. When I was in school and we were reading about Mother Teresa, we were told she was born in Albania. Mm. But uh, actually, she was born in Skopje, which is actually in modern-day Macedonia, or I should say Northern Macedonia, the Republic of Northern Macedonia, as it's just recently changed its name. Mm. So it's a small bit confusing. Her father was, was Albanian. Um, and, of course, we have the Irish connection to say Mother Teresa because, of course, she joined the Loretto sisters and did her novitiate in Dublin before she went to India in 1928. That's right. Then, in 1948, she left the Loretto congregation and she became and started working with the poor and founded, of course, her congregation of the Missionaries of Charity in 1950. So that's Mother Teresa. She died in September, 5th of September, 1997. Uh, people will probably remember it. That was the same year, of course, as, uh, what's her name? Princess Diana died as well. Mm. So she was canonized by John Paul II, in tw- uh, sorry, by Pope Francis in 2016. And <clears throat> the canonization miracle was the healing of a brain abscess in a comatose 42-year-old mechanical engineer in Santos in Brazil in 2008. So if you think about it, the miracle was in 2008 and she wasn't canonized till 2016. So that was eight years before it was approved, mm. which is a, it's a bit of time for these things to happen. Check it out. Now, then, an interesting one. On the 6th of September, we have the feast day of St. Bega, or Bega. Now, I wasn't quite sure who this woman was. Um, and as well as that, she's on the English calendar, not the Irish calendar. But uh, she actually has an Irish connection. She was born to Irish royalty. And her family were trying to arrange her marriage to the Prince of Norway. And she wanted nothing to do with us. So she refused the arrangement and she fled. And legend says she was carried across the Irish Sea to the coast of Cumberland by riding on a clod of earth. Don't you just love the ancient uh, traditions surrounding our saints? Mm -hmm. So she lived as an anchoress in Cumberland for many years, fed by the birds in the woods. Now, if people are not familiar with what an anchoress is, sometimes what used to happen was you'd have a room attached to a church and a a person, an anchorite, uh, would live in that room. Now, the room was generally closed up. But it would have two openings, one a window to the outside world and one kind of a window to the church so that the person could participate and watch uh, the sacraments and the liturgies in the church. And then the window to the outside world for people to come and seek prayer and guidance and obviously feed the person that was living as the anchorite. So that was her. Um, <clears throat> so then St. Oswald of Dantumbria uh, convinced her to enter a convent for her own safety. And she took the veil from, of course, St. Aidan of Lindisfarne. She found a monastery which is named after and there's a couple of towns named after her. St. Bees Head in Cumberland. Uh, she's also associated with the village of Kilbees in Scotland, which was also named for her. And she died in 681 of natural causes. Then on the 7th of uh, September, we have the feast day of St. Cloud. Now, before I get into this interesting gentleman, just to point out that that is the first Friday of the month for those that are keeping first Friday devotion. Um, Cloud is a French saint born to French royalty. You know, we have a couple of themes of royalty this month. Um, son of King Clodomir and Clotilde. Obviously, they were very um, adventurous when they chose these family names. Grandson of King Clovis and Saint Clotilde. Now, Clovis is the, the man. He's the guy that is seen as founding the monarchy of France. So this guy comes from royal stock. Uh, the king's sons were raised in Paris after their father was killed in battle. 
uh, particularly by their grandmother, until uh, an ambitious uncle murdered two of them in a power grab. Uh, St. Cloud escaped and renounced all claims to the throne, and he withdrew to Provence to live as a, provin- a prayerful hermit, and then when his identity became known, his, his hermitage became a destination for pilgrimages, pilgrims even, mm-hmm. and he turned to Paris, built the monastery known as St. Cloud, and retired there and lived a community of holy brothers, and he died in 560 of natural causes. So Saturday then is the 8th of September, obviously for those keeping the first Friday devotions, just a reminder, it's the first, sorry, the first Saturday devotions, I beg your pardon. Obviously, of course, the 8th of December is the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, nine months after, of course, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. So uh, it is the birth of Mary to um, to St. Anne. Uh, probably, the feast probably originated after the Council of Ephesus in 431. Now, people say, Shane, what the blazes of the Council of Ephesus? It was a council that Ephesus in 431. And the argument it was resolving was whether or not God, Jesus was truly human and truly divine, which, of course, he was both. And that was defined because it defines Mary as the mother of God. Theotokos is the title or her most ancient title in the church. And it was um, and that was defined in, in at, at Ephesus in 431. So it's believed then that the, the, the feast around her birth came from the Eastern Church around that time and is also associated with the Protoevangelicum of St. James. So that's what we have, uh, uh, John, in terms of the Celestial Guides. Obviously, of course, as it is the first week of the month, we also have to mention the Pope's intentions. So as the Pope's intentions for September are that young people in Africa may have access to education and work in their own countries. Uh, So that's young people in Africa may have access to education and work in their own countries. So that's the Pope's intention, John, for the month of September. Thank you very much, Nee, for the first week of September. Thank you very much, Nee, Shane. Shane, just one question. You yeah. mentioned there St. Gregory the Eighth. How did you say he Gregory was... Gregory the Great. St. Gregory the, uh, the Great, excuse me. Yes. Yeah, yes. sorry. When he was, you said, chosen, by po- uh, chosen as Pope by popular... Acclamation. Explain. So... Yeah, there used to be a number of ways of being elected Pope. Uh, the one that we're familiar with, of course, at the moment is the election in Conclave, where two-thirds of the cardinals gather. You have to win or you have to get two-thirds plus one of the votes of the cardinals gathered in Conclave to be elected the Bishop of Rome. However, that wasn't always the way, that wasn't always the method of electing the Pope, uh, as the cardinals, the, the, uh, the, the office of cardinal didn't exist until the Middle Ages. So one of the previous methods was uh, popular acclamation, where a name uh, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, this, a, a name would come up from the people of God, uh, the people of the Church of Rome gathered together, and by acclamation, a person would be elected to the, to the Bishop of Rome as the Petrine office. So that was, that was Gregory. He was one of those elected by uh, acclamation. Another example we have in the church's history is St. Ambrose, actually, of Milan. Uh, tradition is a child led the acclamations for Ambrose to be elected the Bishop of Milan as well. So it goes back, John, to the kind of the tradition of the elections of, of bishops, which used to be a bit more, um, how shall I put this, a bit more involving of the, of, the, of the everyone in the street kind of an affair. But, of course, when you do that, they also become more political which was part of the problems 
uh, we had in the Middle Ages with the investiture crisis. But yeah, so that was acclamation, invest, uh, election by acclamation. Do you know, there's no doubt about it. Uh, I've, I've met a few people recently, some of our listeners, uh, yeah. who, who says, how does Shane get to know all this information about saints and so on and so forth? Well, you've certainly proved it this evening. Thanks a lot, Shane. <laughs> no problem, John. So that was uh, the Saints of the Week. Thank you very much, Ned, again, for, for that, Shane. Now it's time to go for our first bit of music. And i got to bring out a little bit of music that I like. Um, after listening to what I have for the last few days, I, uh, the, the word that uh, resonates with me is that word hope, because I think there is hope out there. And we'll talk about it, as we said, in the next few months. So I want to play something from the World Youth Day 2000 in Rome. And this is by... But it's entitled Messengers of Hope. So let's say this. Dear young friends, I pray that your faith in Christ will always be lively and strong. This way, you will always be ready to tell others the reason for your hope. You will be messengers of hope for the world. Sacred Space. 
So welcome back again to the second part of Sacred Space. My name is John Keeley. It's joined in studio here by Shane Ambrose and, of course, Lorraine is still joining us as well. Uh, this evening, uh, we said, uh, as we spoke to a, a number of weeks ago, we said we would have a guest on the program to share with us some of their thoughts or his thoughts on Humanivita, which, of course, is 50 years in existence this particular year. So, uh, to help me to uh, present this part of the program this morning, I'll hand over to my colleague, Shane. Shane. Thanks, John. We have, on the other end of the telephone, excuse me, I forgot to introduce our guest. Maybe you can. Sure, no hassle. So, this morning we're joined by uh, Tom, Tom, Thomas, Tom Finnegan from Mary Immaculate. Good morning, Thomas. How's things? Good, thanks. Good, thanks, uh, Shane. And you? Not too bad now at all. And as John said at the top of the program, this year, uh, one of the anniversaries that's been marked in church circles um, is, of course, the uh, 50th anniversary of the publication of the Papal Encyclical Humanae Vitae. And, of course, as, as well as it being the 50th anniversary of the publication of the encyclical, in October we're also celebrating or will be celebrating the canonization of Paul VI, which is, he's being canonized on or around October the 15th. So this morning, um, Tom has joined us from Mary just to kind of take us through, I suppose, the basics around Humanae Vitae and kind of to just remind us what it says, what it's about, and also, I suppose, context to why, in some respects, it's so controversial. But before we dive into that kind of, of heavy lifting, Tom, where are you from yourself? I'm originally from Navan, uh, County Mead. So I grew up there and um, then I went to college in, in Maynooth, in, in Kildare. I initially went to Dublin, DCU, uh, to do accountancy, but then I, I switched and uh, began studying theology in Maynooth and... I lived in Clare for a good while and only recently enough uh, moved down here to Thurlis to the new uh, Mary Immaculate College campus in Thurlis um, in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies here. Ah, very good. And you got sense and left accounting. I wish I had done that myself. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thanks very much for joining us on the programme this morning. And you were saying you, you, you're lecturing with Mary I. Just in general, what are your areas that you cover uh, in Mary I when you're lecturing or what's your, what's your background, if you like, in that sense? Yeah, well, my research interest would be the area of um, moral philosophy and moral theology. Um, but I teach also um, in systematic uh, theology. I have a background as well, qualifications in, um, in, in, in law as well, and I studied philosophy independently as well. So um, morality is my main interest, um, though there's all sorts of other areas in that I'd be, you know, kind of an interested um, uh, looker on, really. Uh, so, for example, one of the things I teach at the moment is, is Christology, which is, you know, really fascinating. But it's not something I, I actively research in. Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. So, as we were saying, uh, to, uh, Thomas, uh, the, the, this year is the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae. And I suppose for many people, um, they might be aware of the name and that, you know, it's, it's a controversial enough papal document, as it was at the time, and even is down to the present day. But before we start, I suppose, into, you know, the document itself, which was published in July 68, there was, there was a bit of history leading up to it. Uh, and actually, we could go back as far as, I suppose, if you like, you know, 1930 in particular, with with the decision of the Anglican Church, just in relation to yeah. the whole area of artificial contraception. Yeah. So in 1930, uh, the Anglican Communion's Lambeth uh, Conference decided that in certain circumstances, uh, contraception uh, could be legitimately used by couples. Now, this decision, again, it was controversial uh, within the Communion at the time. Uh, Bishop resigned from the the conference uh, in light of that decision. The decision also in 1930 contradicted or overturned a previous decision 
her previous uh, Anglican conference uh, in 1920. Um, so that was the first time any, I suppose you could call it, uh, Christian community or Christian church uh, taught that contraception could be moral, uh, could be practiced without sin. Up until that point, it was pretty much the universal teaching of all mainline Christian churches that it was a sin to, to use contraception with, either within or, or outside uh, marriage. And indeed, published, I think it was in 1963, by... Uh, uh, by a scholar, John Noonan, on the subject, uh, concluded um, that uh, pretty much every main uh, theologian or saint or doctor of the church that has ever spoken on the topic um, up until the 20th century uh, thought that it was it was wrong. Um, so that was the first break that occurred, and obviously, um, when that happened, um, first of all, the kind of the secular press hailed it as a momentous uh, event. And that they hailed as something that would have a profound impact upon you know society and culture and 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 moral norms and so on. And obviously, it didn't take very long for pressure to come on the Catholic Church to revisit its teaching on on contraception. That that teaching itself had been uh, reaffirmed very emphatically um, in 1930 uh, by Pope Pius XI in a papal encyclical called Casti Canubi. So okay, so they so Pius Pius had 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 he was he responding to the Lambeth Conference or it was just coincidental at the time? Actually, I'm not sure. I'm not okay. sure. The same year, obviously, the Lambeth Conference. Mm. Um, but I'm not sure which preceded uh, which. I mean, obviously, at least one of the churches was fully cognizant of of what was going on in the other church at the time. Mm. Okay, uh, it was an important year, kind of. It sets those two communions apart on a on a pretty important area of of moral theology. Mm. Um, obviously, that that has implications well beyond moral teaching. That has implications in terms of of of, of communion and and ecclesiology between the two churches that you know resonate today uh, quite strongly. Right, and then um, then in terms of in terms of I suppose looking from a from a Catholic point of view. I suppose it was we we were moving on forties and six up to the sixties. Of course, the big change in the early nineteen sixties, of course, is uh, the 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 if you like the coming onto the scene of the the contraceptive pill and the challenge then that that posed to the church's teaching. So um, in the, the first time I suppose the church looked at it was this commission from John the twenty third. Of course, good Saint, good Pope Saint John uh, decided he was going to look at it. Um, and of course, that was also done in the whole context of the calling of the Vatican Council. So, that what what was the story behind that commission that John called? Yeah, as you say, Shane, I suppose kind of the the motive for that is probably twofold. Um, there's obviously a lot of pressure, social cultural pressure, coming on the church to you know have a look again at this teaching because it's it's seen and it's understood as a harsh teaching uh, by many. And obviously in the 60s you've got the, the sexual revolution, you've got, uh, really was a revolution in terms of um, a kind of societal attitude towards sex and responsibility and marriage and family and all of that. And obviously at the heart of it was the idea of free love. And if anything is incompatible with free love, it's the church's teaching on, um, on contraception. So that was going on. The other thing that was going on was, as you mentioned, um, the massive, massive uh, I suppose scientific breakthrough that was the pill prior to this. Uh, contraception took the form of barrier methods and the forms of condoms, most obviously. Um, that you know it, the success rate of condoms uh, isn't isn't particularly high. It, it, they're awkward to use and so on. With the invention of the pill, women could uh, bring contraceptive use under their own control, um, and it seemed to raise new questions. For example. 
quite obvious in the case of condoms that something is being prevented. Um, whereas in the case of the pill, uh, a lot of theologians would have said, well, look, what's going on with the pill is, is something that's different. Um, you've got a suppression of, of the ovulatory system, of woman's ovulatory system. You know, does that raise different uh, biological and theological issues? Um, so in light of that, the Pope uh, established a commission to look uh, again at these questions. Um, this commission itself was, was referenced uh, in, in the document Gaudium et Spes of, of Vatican II and footnote 14 of it, uh, when it, when it kind of touched briefly on this issue. And there was a lot of expectation uh, within and outside uh, the, the church uh, as to what this uh, commission would say. A lot of people were hoping that it would come back with a, with a yes answer, or come back and say, you know, in certain circumstances, in light of technological developments or whatever else, it might be permissible, it might not be a sin uh, for, for couples, uh, for faithful couples to use contraception. And of course, <clears throat> uh, then of course we head into the end of the council and it was interesting that um, Paul VI increased uh, that original commission from John the Twenty-Third, but originally there was only six um, people on it and Paul enlarged it, I think it was up to 58 members and quite a varied um, membership because he included married couples, laywomen, as well as theologians and bishops. Um, but obviously, of course, he had reserved the actual final decision on it to himself and he'd taken it out of the council's remit. And of course, that yeah. brings us along then, I suppose, to the actual encyclical itself, which was published in um, in 1968. Now, I suppose one of the biggest, I suppose, challenges in relation to this is, is the fact that probably a lot of people have heard of the document. Probably yeah. most people know one of the basic tenets of what they what what it says in terms of the use or non-use of artificial contraception but probably a lot of people don't actually know what Humanae Vitae said um if you could kind of summarize it in a couple of points what do you think would be the key things that came about that Paul was trying to teach at that time right it's not the easiest thing to summarize no I appreciate that I, yeah yeah I begin by uh, by um just outlining briefly some of the things that it didn't affirm that mm. it didn't propose it didn't say it nowhere said that um, uh, marital sex that doesn't result in children is wrong. Uh, it nowhere said that it is wrong or a sin for couples to uh, not have very large families or to try and limit uh, the number of children they have. Uh, what it did uh, say is uh, positively that uh, marriage is, isn't just a social institution. Um, it's actually part of God's plan uh, for humanity, especially God's plan for human sexuality. Uh, that marriage is a great good and marital sex is a great good. Uh, in fact, that marital sex is kind of intrinsic and essential to marriage. It's not some sort of kind of happy add-on. Marital sex really is the expression of, of, of a deep and massively important union between uh, husband and wife. Uh, it did say, and this is getting to the heart of the teaching, um, that uh, sexual intercourse between husband and wife has kind of two dimensions which are both, you know, intrinsically important. One is the procreative dimension, uh, which is that dimension whereby, I suppose, um, couples unfold their love for each other uh, by bringing into life uh, a, a new person, a new person made in the image and likeness of God, who's also, in, in a very important way, in the image and likeness of themselves, of course. The other dimension is the unitive dimension, uh, that sex is, is really unitive, not just emotionally, although it is, not just in terms of pleasure, although it is, not just psychologically, although it is, but it's unitively... Uh, real, uh, probably in the most important sense in, in which it, it unites two bodies. The, the husband and wife really do become one flesh with one another. And the point that encyclical makes is that the contraception uh, undermines and actually opposes both those dimensions. 
to uh, to to mar- marital conjugal love. Probably more obvious in the in the case of, of procreation, because obviously in, in with the use of contraceptives, uh, the the couples uh, oppose uh, their, their will opposes the bringing into new life of a person. Uh, their their will uh, deliberately chooses to use contraception as opposed to uh, to the good of life, to the good of a new uh, human being who's made in the image and likeness of God. Theologians since then have pointed out that there can be no you know, justifiable reason to set one's will opposed to life in, in that way. Life is, is, is you know, hugely valuable. There is no greater value uh, than, than a, in this world um, than, than, a, than a new human being, than, a, than a, an individual person with their own d- a distinct identity. And the other way in which uh, contraception undermines uh, the marital uh, love in the form of uh, sex between husband and wife is is that it actually undermines the very basis uh, for thinking that they really do form a, a union, a real union in marital sex. The way in which husband and wife become one primarily is by becoming one body and become one body because um, they really do unite at the level of, of, of reproduction. Um, reproduction can only take place when uh, when there are two uh, mutually coordinated uh, bodies that are differentiated in terms of sex and gender working together complementar- in a complementary way and contraception undermines that it, 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 it dissolves the basis for those bodies working together there's something that's kind of uh, their, their, their union, their bodily union is temporarily sterilised in the form of contraception whether it's condoms or pill or whatever else and that actually dissolves the bodily union there's kind of the appearance of a, of a bodily union still there's the feeling of a bodily union, but in reality, and moral theology has to deal in reality, there is no union uh, at that level. Mm. That's, I think, well, that's my summary of the, of, mm. of, of the core of the teaching. I mean, it's not an easy teaching. The, the document Humana Vitae points out that uh, Catholic couples, um, you know, need to find assistance in living out this teaching uh, through sacramental grace and through prayer. Um, that this teaching will never make any sense to anybody who is not kind of in control of, of their emotions and their sex drive, you know, the chastity is an essential ingredient for living out this, uh, this teaching, but it also teaches that, and it's right in saying that it's perfectly possible uh, to live out this teaching, and that the living out this teaching is to the, uh, is to the enrichment, uh, benefits the enrichment of, of marital love, um, and it's, it benefits the, the spouse's relationship, uh, with, you know, not just themselves, but uh, with, uh, with God, who is the author of life um, himself. And I suppose that be that I suppose would be one of the main I feel like challenges to the teaching, even from 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 the moment of its publication, in '68 up to uh, up to now, is I suppose people would say it's unrealistic. It's you know in 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 one sense, or that it's it's setting an ideal which people really can't live up to, or it doesn't. It's just not practical for people in their everyday lives. But I suppose I suppose yeah. that's 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 part of I suppose having to. Um, engage with the teaching and see what way we can we can live up it up to it. Would you say? Yeah, well, I mean the I mean there's all sorts of different arguments uh, levelled against humana vitae. Um, so the claim that it's impractical and that it can't be lived up to is is one of the ones that's easiest to defeat because it's an empirical uh, argument and it's empirically falsified. People do live up to it. Mm. Um, I mean, there's literally you, know, you can't have precise numbers, but quite literally, hundreds of thousands of couples around the world live up to it. Um, in the course of their lives, so I mean, it's, it's certainly doable. Um, you know, and there's lots of, uh, I mean, another teaching of the church in relation to morality is that it's always wrong to to lie. Um, Tom, hello. Um, and again, in context, what's that? Sorry, could you could you go back again? You said, yeah, hello, Tom, are you there? 
Hello, yeah, Shane. Yeah. So, sorry, we dropped you there for a second. You were saying about it's wrong to lie. So if you could take it from there again. Yeah, well, just, I mean, it, the, the church also teaches that it's intrinsically wrong to lie. I mean, that's not an easy teaching to live up to. But, uh, you know, again, people do live up to it. And just because a teaching might be difficult doesn't mean that it's not a true teaching or it doesn't really outline a good, um, a virtuous, healthy, fulfilling ways of, of, of living one's life. Um, so it certainly it's, it, it, it can be done. Obviously, it's, it's, it probably this document came at, in a way, the worst possible time because it's been presented to a culture that's increasingly, I suppose, oblivious to the idea that uh, there's something intrinsically meaningful and important and beautiful and loving about sex. It's a culture which is you know, increasingly pornographied, uh, individualistic, materialistic, um, nihilistic even, um, and it's a culture that struggles even at this point in time to see any sense in the idea that marriage just itself is something mm. worthy and good and worth pursuing. So obviously a teaching in relation to contraception being intrinsically wrong is just going to get a very poor hearing. The other issue in relation to its reception is that it was promulgated at a time where, as I mentioned earlier, there was this huge technological uh, breakthrough with the pill, um, which made contraception so much easier. There's always been contraception. I mean, there's been with the withdrawal method since time immemorial. Condoms first came on the scene, I suppose, maybe roughly later Renaissance period and so on. Um, but with the pill, you have, uh, I suppose, a massive improvement in the efficacy of contraception. So, the, 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 you know, the, the um, kind of successful, uh, the success of the pill, if used properly, is something in the region of 99% uh, in, in cases, which is a very high percentage rate. At the time, Humanavita was promulgated, um, the, the method that couples would need to use to space out their children if they wanted to do so uh, while avoiding use of contraception uh, you know, would have been something like the rhythm method. Um, and at the time, you know, to, to use the rhythm method, it wasn't particularly scientifically sophisticated. Um, you know, maybe charts could be used at the time, but it would have made it quite hard and burdensome and awkward uh, for couples, especially for the woman, to use it. Uh, whereas if the encyclical was propagated now, um, you've got you know a number of important advancements in terms of technology that makes uh, you know adhering to humanity a lot easier. You've got um, you know electronic devices like Ladycom, for example, um, which where it's very easy for uh, the, the wife to record her temperature and gives an automatic reading as to whether or not she's fertile. You've got various apps that can be used, easily downloaded, you know, very cheap. Use of these methods overall is as cheap as contraceptives, if not cheaper. It's as successful as contraceptives uh, and more successful in terms of, you know, efficacy than, than condoms, for example. And obviously it doesn't bring any um, health risks, adverse health risks or so on, as the pill can sometimes do. So in a way, so the, kind of the nub of the point is that humanity was, was promulgated as possibly uh, the worst time mm. in terms of societal reception. I actually I find that an interesting point. <clears throat> Sorry that you, you were saying that if you know in terms of if it was published today in some ways it could actually almost be defended in an easier in, in, at an easier level in terms of that because of the technological advances that have been given. The other thing that struck me when I was reading back through it, um, and this is something that's often been said about it, and I I, I was wondering uh, in terms of people's views on it that some were saying that Paul's take on the consequences of what um, Pope Francis now calls a kind of a contraceptive culture was very prophetic in some regards. And like, I was just, you know, reading through it and it, it, it was just saying, you know, um, 
they were talking about kind of lowering of moral standards, which everyone kind of worries about today in some regards, in terms of uh, the exposures to temptation for young people, given the increased worries that we have in terms of access to whatever it is online and and, and, and on the web. Uh, but what I what really struck me actually was his his section about his section or his line seeing how men would react and and uh, their views and the way that they treat women. And I was thinking to myself, it wouldn't be a stretch, actually, to say the whole, you know, the whole Me Too movement uh, could actually take that particular line from Humanae Vitae, where he says, you know, men who grow accustomed to the use of the contraceptive methods may forget reverence due to women, disregard her physical and emotional equilibrium, you know, reduce her to being a mere instrument for their satisfaction and no longer consider them as a partner which, who they should surround with care and affection. And I was just thinking to myself, in many ways, you know, you could actually just take that out and put it into a Me Too movement uh, tweet and it would not be out of place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really important to understand Humana Vitae is, is, in many respects, just one small component part of a wider organic teaching about love and the relationship between men and women and marriage. Uh, it's very easy to misunderstand it as this kind of isolated add-on that's just a, you know, a kind of a really annoying, harsh teaching that the church just threw in uh, you know, for the crack. Mm-hmm. Um, like the underlying logic of it is very clear and it's contained in the text that you know, marriage is about love. It's about the gift of oneself to one's spouse uh, completely freely and, and, and totally holding nothing back, uh, not holding back any part of your body or any part of your being or any part of your future, uh, you know, exposing yourself to the other um, to the extent that your love is, is, is complete and everything is given. Um, you know, not trying to say yes to one aspect of your spouse and no to the other, you know, no to the, to the possibility that we, we may have children together. It's just being completely open, completely loving. Um, so obviously at the heart of this then is real reverence for you know both the husband from the perspective of the wife and uh, for the wife from the perspective of the husband, uh, and the Pope does make that point as he just outlined there that if you kind of if you if you say that um, it's it's permissible to um, see the other person's body as a means towards your own sexual gratification, which is ultimately what contraception is about, because I mean you know people that want contraception don't want it just for marriage; they want it as a way of making uh, pretty much every sexual choice easier to accomplish. Um, if, if you see that as, as permissible, then obviously down the line, logically, you're going to have to come to the conclusion that you know, the other person who's always embodied isn't actually that important anyway. Um, and, and I think that's what's happened. Um, so I know like a lot of the... When this, again, when this was first promulgated, you would have had a lot of liberals in the United States and 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 um and england for example who would have uh, said that the church's teaching in relation to contraception is kind of anti-woman because um ultimately the burden on child rearing falls on women and they would have kind of interpreted the humana vitae as saying that you cannot uh, but have loads and loads of children that it's wrong not to have not to limit your family or it's wrong to limit your family that's not what humana vitae, uh, humana vitae teaches that's how it was often interpreted so a lot of people would have said that humana vitae is anti-woman. This very same sort of liberal mentality that would have been saying that you know it's important to stand up for women's rights, stand up for the right to abortion, was the very same sort of liberal uh, grouping that would have uh, very much supported and financed and consumed pornography. Because again, in the 60s, you have this explosion in pornography that's continued today, uh, especially in the internet age. 
Um, and of course, we now know uh, that this exposure in pornography um, has has basically um, led to a situation uh, where the Me Too movement seems completely necessary, where uh, where it's you know taken for granted that young men objectify uh, and depersonalize women when it comes to when it comes to sex, uh, where you know rape there's such a thing as a rape culture, where you have a case cases in England that the government feels need to run adverts saying that rape is wrong. Um, that only kind of happens in a culture where you see little Playboy t-shirts for girls appearing in, 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 in you know, supermarket stores, as happened a number of years ago. Uh, so the two go hand in hand, and I suppose in that sense what Humana Vitae was doing was something that was you know, counter-cultural in the sense of opposing where we've ended up, and also really prophetic. Um, it, it, it is saying that you know if, if you if you adopt this attitude that casual sex is is okay if you think it's okay to depersonalize yourself and the other person to use another person for your own gratification that's going to have consequences um, and you know I think that's that's been borne out I think that's come to pass. Okay. Unfortunately, we're coming up to our time limits on this one. So thanks very much, very much for coming on the program to tell us and talk to us about that and just remind us of what it is. And I suppose in some ways, in if you like, the, the challenge it still poses to us very much today uh, in relation to that particular teaching. And um, good food and, and some very interesting food for thought, actually, Tom, in the last couple, in the last segment there, in terms of you know the consequences it has in terms of of, of the society that we like and the cho- and the choices that we make. Um, something for us, I suppose, to think about this morning on, on the program. Now, John, we have a couple of selections of music, or we have a selection of music to close out this segment. Yeah, I think uh, Tom, there's one you picked there. There is the kingdom. Yes. Yeah, we've just got about right. time to play that. We, we might just play it that one time and see where we go after that. Okay, let's say this. Yep. By, and it's the, there is a kingdom by whom? Did you say it was again? It's uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Okay, let's say this song. Sacred Space. 
So, welcome back again to the third part of Sacred Space. My name is John Keeley. Still joined in studio here by Shane Ambrose and Lorraine Buckler. So, now the most important part of the programme is where we read and reflect on the Word of God. And this morning, Lorraine's going to read a prayer before reading and reflecting on Scripture. Thanks, Lorraine. So, we invite you to pray this prayer with us. Lord, we thank you for putting us in the presence of your Word, which you inspired in your prophets. May we approach this word reverently, attentively and humbly. May we not despise this word, but receive all it has to say to us. We know that our hearts are closed, often incapable of comprehending the simplicity of your word. Send your spirit to us, so that receiving the word in truth and simplicity, our lives may be transformed by it. Let us not be resistant, Lord. May your word penetrate us like a two-edged sword. May our hearts be open to it. Let not our eyes be closed nor our minds wander, but may we give ourselves entirely to this listening. We ask this, Father, in union with Mary, who used to recite the Psalms through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks for that, Lorraine. So the Gospel for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verse 1 to 8, and 14 to 15, and 21 to 23. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come up from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, and they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with unclean hands, that is, without washing them. For the Pharisees and the Jews in general followed the tradition of the elders, and never eat without washing their arms as far as the elbow. And on returning from the marketplace, they never eat without first sprinkling themselves. There are also many other observances which have been handed down, which which have been handed down to them concerning the washing of cups and uh, bronze dishes. So these Pharisees and scribes asked them, "Why do your disciples not respect the tradition of the elders, but eat their food with unclean hands?" He answers, "It was of you hypocrites that Isaiah so rightly prophesies in his passage of scripture." This people honours me with lip service, while their hearts are far from me. The worship they offer me is worthless, and the doctrines they teach are only human regulations. You put aside the commandment of God to cling to human traditions. He called the people to him again and said, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a man from outside can make him unclean. It's the things that come out of a man that make him unclean. For it is from within, from men's hearts, that evil intentions emerge. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, malice, deceit, indecency, envy, slander, pride and folly. And all these evil things come from within and make a man unclean. So that's the Gospel for today, the 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time. Don't have too long to to reflect this morning. Maybe, Shane, you might have a a thought or two you might want to share with us, please. Sure, John. Um, Thankfully, we returned to Mark this week after five weeks of John. Um, Listeners would probably have noticed that over the last five weeks, we had had been challenged in terms of John's, uh, reflecting on John's Gospels. But this morning, we're back with Mark. And I think, I suppose in many ways, the Gospel this morning would speak to many of us on many, many levels, and I suppose practical experience as well, both from the point of view of religious observance um, in many respects, but also from day-to-day life. Um, There was two things that that struck me about this morning. From a religious perspective, this whole fascination and prescription and focus on externalities, 
you know, looking at things, doing things the proper way because that's the way it must be done. Whereas what Jesus talks about is you must do the things because it comes from your heart. And the focus that unless you have that heartfelt relationship with God, then whatever it is that you do doesn't really make any sense. And that's what he was criticizing the Pharisees and the scribes for. That, you know, the whole idea of the law and the prophets was to bring the people's hearts closer to Yahweh. And but by only focusing on the externalities, by not looking inwards to that whole concept of metanoia that we've talked about again and again on the program, um, then there, you know, there was the issues. There was they weren't getting the point of what the law was about, the law and the prophets. And I suppose the other side of it, we could look at that ourselves, I suppose, and say, well, people very much focus on, you know, uh, how many rosaries you said, or did you go to mass, or did you receive communion, and all the rest of it. And I suppose the question for us is, are we doing things for the right reasons? It's not, you know, in terms of are we doing it from a place of love and a place fully in our heart? And that, I suppose, is is the question that, that it asks us. The other side of it, I suppose, John, is I suppose the other thing, you know, Lexio isn't just purely about uh, looking at things from a religious perspective. It's about how we live our daily lives. And for me, that's something, you know, the observance of externalities and not looking to the heart of things in our day-to-day lives and one of the areas there that strike me is about payment of taxes you know and in terms of we have a great culture sometimes of people saying Asher I didn't have to do that because and it's kind of saying well you know it comes back to rights and responsibilities as members of society everyone talks about their rights their right to this service their right to that service their human rights and this right and all the other rights but as a member, as a member of civic society, we also have a responsibility to contribute and to participate and, for example, to pay our taxes, you know, just just as an example. Um, you know, it's just it's just something because I've worked in countries very much where that understanding uh, doesn't exist because governments just take the taxes and they abuse and use them, particularly in very corrupt countries. So I've seen on the ground in my own work experience just the implications of that. But it's something for us to think about that, you know, remind us Lexio isn't just about purely a religious focus, but also how do we carry that over into our daily lives? Just something for us to think about this morning. Thanks for that, Shane. Uh, Lorraine, do you want to offer a quick one? I think uh, Shane actually hit the nail on the head there. Now, you'd know he's an accountant, wouldn't you, lads? Seriously, talking to us about... I'm only joking, Shane. (laughs) At the heart of it all is love. Mm. Love is what keeps us going. Love is what we're created for. And, you know, recently we've heard all the stuff coming out of America regarding more accounts of sexual abuses. And I would highly recommend a little video by Father Mike Schmitz. He does um, a series of little videos every now and again for Ascension Press. So if you're on Facebook or something like that, you can look him up. And he goes through the horror that he expressed uh, when he found out about the abuse cases. And and he speaks about that gap of trust that can sometimes be between members of the church and members within and without the church. But he finishes up by saying, he said, like, Loads of people ask him, why are you still a priest? Why are you still in the church? And he said, don't leave the church. Lead the church. In other words, don't leave the community of believers. Lead the community of believers by being holy yourself. Because sometimes we can look at at a person and go, God, they're awful holy. I'd love to be like them. Whereas what we should be concentrating on is our own personal holiness. And where does that holiness come from? It doesn't come from outside. It comes from inside. So we look at our own heart and we look at how we love and 
what sort of love we put into things. And then we look at rooting out those areas in our own lives where we are sinful, where we are weak. And in doing so, we will become saints. And that is most of all what the church needs in our day and in every age. The church needs a community of believers who are saints, who are loving, who watch out for each other. And that's my thought. Thanks for that, Lorraine. So now we've just about come to the end of the programme. Nice to have you back in the, in the studio here in Ada, Shane. Thank you very much indeed. We might be able to get. He is, he is, he is. Although I am about to disappear for another three weeks. <laughs> anyway, he we'll says that listeners, he leaves us to do all the work. I'm again, <laughs> again. But anyway, thank you very much, Neil. For unfortunately, we don't have any time to play any music to see us out this morning. But thank you again for joining us, and uh, we'll speak to you again next week. God bless you all. Now, bye. Sacred space.